You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Trinity Muzan Wofford, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stefan. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you too. Um, well, so you are the CEO and co-founder of Gold, G-O-L-D-E um, dot co, if people want to visit your website. Uh, how do you describe Gold these days? Yeah, Gold is a superfood health and beauty brand. We're really all about taking wellness and making it more easy, approachable, and most importantly, fun for the next generation. What is What does fun mean in the world of wellness? That's a good question. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that in order to answer that question, you almost have to go back and ask what feels so unfun about wellness um, historically. And I think what I had felt in my, you know, wellness journey as a consumer and what I had heard from so many peers was that the wellness industry felt very overwhelming it felt confusing. People didn't know where to look. There was a lot of fear mongering, right? Of like, you know, don't use this. Or, you know, if you don't take this vitamin, you're going to age too quickly or whatever. A lot of, you know, kind of detox trends. And so what I had found was most effective for me in in wellness and, and thinking about this piece of fun was really just feeling like your best self and being able to enjoy the process And so I I think that we really lead with fun with everything that we do, whether it's like, you know, packaging design or the use of the product or the way that we're talking to our customer, just reminding people that it doesn't all have to be so serious. Well, and and I think it seems like the science of all of this is always changing. And it has for, you know, like 100 years. It's like, are we drinking red wine and are we eating chocolate? Are we what are we like? What are we doing? What what like side of this are we on right now? Yes. And with ingredients, like how do you find the, the right balance in terms of where you feel certain about certain trends and, and where you don't? Yeah, that's such a good question because I think superfoods are a funny category in that there's like always something new and I use new with air quotes there um, that's popping up that people are excited about. Um, there's always kind of like the next big thing. And, and the reality is like first and foremost that pretty much all of this stuff has been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years by, you know, folks around the world. So it's, it's never really new. It's just, it's coming to light in a, in a new cultural context. And I I think that with that, we try to be thoughtful about where our customer is at today in her superfood journey, as you might call it. And so we love to introduce them to new concepts that they hadn't necessarily heard of before, but also balance that with stuff that feels familiar. I, I think we've all been in that situation where you're in like the, the health food store looking at the supplement aisle and there are so many things that you can't pronounce. You don't know where they come from. You don't know what they taste like. And it's really hard to kind of like get a handle on it because it's so much at once So I think we try to sort of strike this balance of, you know, introducing some of our customers for the first time to matcha, but also, you know, having superfoods like pineapple and blueberry that we feature that, you know, people feel like they, they know exactly kind of what they're getting out of that product. Well, it seems like even the word superfood, it's always like, I mean, pineapple is, is I think fairly 
understood by the the general population yes. as a as a fruit. But there's oftentimes some new super fruit or something that it's like, wow, I've never heard of goji berries or something. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> suddenly you're like, should is this the thing that's gonna solve all my problems? Like I should just have goji berries every day and now I'll be a super powered human being. Well, Stefan, I feel like that's the other big issue that comes with a lot of wellness marketing is that like, this is the thing, it's going to solve all of your problems. Like right. you've been missing out up until this moment. And I think that that comes back to this culture of fear and and scarcity and you've got to get it now. And I suppose that that does sell, um, but it's really not the, the, the method that we've ever used. We really try to position anything that we are marketing to our community as something that will just help them improve their daily routine, whether it's, you know, getting a little boost of energy from matcha or, you know, using, you know, one of our face masks for, you know, getting the the beauty benefits of superfoods. We never promise to, you know, treat a, a health condition or, you know, that any one product is, is going to fix someone's life. And I think part of the real enjoyable opportunity with wellness is the freedom to explore and to try different things, see what works, see what works for you seasonally. You know, what works for you in this moment might not work for you another year from now. So I think that's that's very important to us. It's just sort of a shifting of the way we talk about wellness. Well, and I've also heard you say it's okay to eat fried chicken. Like, yes. <laughs> like all of us, you know, like we want to... Even if you're someone who's like, you're literally starting, a, you know, you're you're running a, a, a wellness company, like all of us, it, maybe that's the fun aspect of it too, which is just like, hey, we're, we're human beings, like we're going to, you know, try our best to be healthy, but there's also things that m- might not be the most healthy that, you know, you might want to indulge in once in a while. Well, I think that when you set this tone of like being a wellness person, you exclude almost everyone and you make people feel like taking care of themselves is not for them, which is so wrong. And I I think that, you know, it's very important to meet people where they are. I personally have my own sort of, you know, dietary guidelines that I like to follow of, you know, what I eat or what I don't eat that helps me feel my best, but I'm not going to put that on someone else. And I'm certainly not going to do it in a way that makes them feel like, having a matcha in the morning or, you know, uh, a turmeric latte is not for them now because they don't do all of the steps. I think it's really important to make that whole category a lot more accessible. How did you first discover matcha? What got you into it? Well, my uh, co-founder and high school sweetheart, Issei, is um, originally from Japan. Um, he was born in, I think it's Japan's southernmost main island, Kyushu. And so matcha is just a, it's just a cultural thing there. You know, it's, it's something that's used in tea ceremonies. You know, it's, it's a flavor in, you know, uh, lots of different delicious treats that we all know and love. So it was really fun and cool for us to launch a matcha product because had that background on the team and we wanted to be really thoughtful about creating a product that was super high quality, but also sort of accessible to someone who maybe like wasn't already whipping up their own like ceremonial matchas uh, every morning. So we really focused on, you know, sourcing the right matcha that had sort of this nice flavor profile that felt 
very approachable. It's got like a natural sweetness to it, almost a natural kind of vanilla-y note, which is really lovely that, you know, makes it so that if you're used to having matcha, that's maybe like doused with like a lot of milk and sugar, this is still one that you'll enjoy. So there was a lot of kind of thinking as to how we did it and how we stayed true to, you know, Issei's heritage there. I was in Kyoto a few years ago and I I didn't make it to Uji, which I think is the town world. It's like mm-hmm. the capital of matcha. Like I, I remember I was only there for like four or five days and I, I was like, oh man, I really want to make it over there, but have to have to go back. It seems like a real thing. Have you been there? No, I've I've never been to Japan, which is wild because Issei's been a few Issei used to go back like every six months or so. By the time we got together ten years ago. He was only going like every few years and we just kind of never made it out there together. And then at a certain point where it would have made sense for me to go, we were like fresh out of college and like way too broke to be able to afford a trip to Japan. So I think now we're finally, I'm finally putting the the pressure back on that as soon as it's safe to do international travel, we should do it because he hasn't been back in, in ages and I've never been. And his, does he have family there still? Yeah, his grandmother's there. All of his, uh, you know, aunts and uncles are there. It's just his mom who came over with him as as a baby. His dad actually, so his dad is American, went to Japan uh, on one of those like English teaching programs and, you know, was there for a while, got, you know, married with uh, Issei's mom. And, you know, they were in Japan for a bit. I think Issei was there for like the first couple years of his life. And then they came to the, the U.S., so everybody's still over there. How did that help in the sourcing process of the the matcha? It was really cool because we could just get a better sense of what was good quality matcha. And, and the taste test was definitely, we brought everything back to Issei's mom and we were like, is this good? And she laughs at us because we use American servings of matcha. Uh, you know, we do like a, a nice like teaspoon for a proper like matcha latte. Um, which she says is just way too much. And you should be using, technically, I, I think it's like a, a gram, you know, mm-hmm. that you should be using of, of matcha and you should just be making, you know, like a sort of like a thin tea just with water. It's it's a much simpler wow. experience, of course, you know, culturally in, in, in Japan. So, but we did make sure that the matcha that we were sourcing was, was really high quality. And, and she definitely helped us with just like, parsing through a lot of the different sourcing things. Issei can't read Japanese, so it gets a little hard to do some of that research online. <laughs> but so that was that was definitely something that we were thinking about when we were on that journey. So you and, and Issei were together for like five or six years before you started Gold. What was that like decision making process like? How did you come to that? <laughs> Yeah, let's see. So Issei and I got together officially in our senior year of high school. We went to different high schools, but we were in this like same countywide program for pre-med students, like pre-pre-med students. We both wanted to be doctors. So we met through that. Issei at the time wanted to be a surgeon and I wanted to be like a holistic physician. Once we realized that we weren't going to be doctors, we knew that we wanted to do something entrepreneurial together. And I think that came very naturally because, again, you say his parents, they have a, a candle pouring operation. They literally started out of their garage like 25 plus years ago now. Wow. He and his family came from Japan to New York. They lived in upstate New York where 
coincidentally, I'm fourth generation uh, up here. And so they started making various like bath and body products, whatever. And then finally, it was the candles that really stuck. So Issei, even when we were just 23 years old or so at the time, we were launching Gold, already had this window into entrepreneurship. He had seen all the ups and downs of what it meant to build a business, to build a family business, to do it profitably. And I, I think that was massively inspirational to us. Although now, uh, in hindsight, I don't know why I didn't just start a candle company. It would have been a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is. It, candles, I, I've made actually quite a few candles in my life. Uh, and, and so there is something meditative and repetitive about it. And you can make them in, in pretty large batches, like as a one person or like small operation, yeah. which is which is convenient. And it doesn't take that much equipment or anything to do it so yeah yeah they've got their own like factory now in in upstate new york where uh you know they've got like the pouring on the on the bottom floor and then the assembly on the the top floor what is it called uh kobo candles k-o-b-o gotta look that up finest soy candles (laughs) (laughs) um one of the things that i really appreciate about you is how you've been constantly like I call it it's just like always learning and always teaching you're always like learning something new and always teaching it to the people who are following you and one of the frameworks that you were sharing on Instagram is this like four wise framework about how I guess one should decide how to prioritize starting a business and you're talking about these four whys being one like financial gain another being around like freedom and your lifestyle the third being creative fulfillment and the fourth being uh, being mission driven. And so I'm curious, well, first of all, how did you come up with that framework? What, what led you to like figuring that piece out? And, and kind of part two is like, how do you think of a gold within that framework? I love that you've been digging through the office hours. There's just, there's so many gems in there. And I feel like I, there are some old ones that I haven't looked back in a while. So I was like, yeah, what are those? What are those wise office hours came about because people were asking me for help and they knew that I was starting a business and it was starting to get a little bit of traction, but we were still in the early stages and they were just starting out or looking to start out and they wanted to know what it was really like. And I had wanted this level of visibility when I was starting out. And when we launched four years ago, 2017, this was still very much in kind of like the heyday of the the glamorized entrepreneur. And so there was really there was nowhere for me to go and get this information to understand, you know, what it meant to bootstrap a company versus what it meant to take venture capital funding and how I could choose one or the other. And there just wasn't a lot of transparency in that. It just felt like mostly what I was getting were these sort of very glossy edited press pieces of like someone, you know, on the cover of a magazine with their arms crossed like this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But not really getting that depth of, of what exactly the journey looked like. So I really based all the content that I have shared and and continue to share on what people were asking for. And something that I thought about a lot as I was building gold, I'll answer both of these questions, was what my motivation was. And I found that as the business grew, it became more and more important that I understood deeply and truly what that motivation was, because depending on where you're going, 
there are so many different paths to, to take the business on. And there were so many people with so many opinions about where I should take the business. I remember within our first year, we were doing like just a tiny, tiny, tiny business, like nothing in, in revenue at that point. And we already had angel investors reaching out and saying, hey, this could be doing a hundred million a year in revenue. Like, how do you want to get there? And my brain, I, I couldn't even conceptualize numbers like that at that time. I was just trying to pay my rent. And so I realized that there were all these different motivators that led people to go into business and, and none was, was better than another, but I knew that I had to be really clear with myself on what it was that I was doing. And, you know, was I building a lifestyle business or was I building a, a startup to take over the world? And I think that in the beginning, very much so we were building a lifestyle business. One of the biggest inspiration points for launching my own company was that I wanted to spend more time with my partner. I, d- I didn't want to work, you know, at a busy startup job feeling, you know, very disconnected from, uh, you know, what I, what I was working on and where my efforts were going. I, I wanted to have more time for creativity. I wanted more opportunities to collaborate with my partner. I, I wanted to put something good out there. But I think that at time, the interesting thing that I've had to continually navigate is growth and understanding that as your little lifestyle business grows, you now owe it to yourself, your community, your team, your retail partners to continue to scale that and, and really operate at you know, the, the scale that the business deserves to operate at which sometimes means that you're taking a little bit of a lifestyle cut in exchange for that. I think that was the longest possible answer to that question, Stefan, but it is an ongoing, I think, journey. (laughs) No, I think what's interesting about that framework is that it's not just you have to choose lifestyle and then those other three things don't matter at all. Right. I like frameworks like this. (laughs) And we make frameworks that leave me like we have one around sustainability what I find is really helpful for people is to prioritize those things to decide, okay, I do also want to have creative fulfillment, but that's second to having a lifestyle that works for me. So if you could take those four things and prioritize them, then you can make decisions more easily around how those fit in with the hierarchy. If financial gain, you know, suddenly takes precedence because, hey, you've got kids that need to go to college or something like that's okay. And you can like move those around a little bit as things change. Um, So to me, it makes total sense that especially as the team has grown, like I I totally understand that feeling of responsibility uh, that comes with that. Like, let me like I now have almost 50 employees and it's like, holy moly, you know, that's like a lot of people that depend on this whole organization functioning. And then I, you know, I have entrepreneurial friends who are like in companies that are way beyond that. And it's like, the problem kind of keeps evolving in in a different way. So when you were interacting with those investors, like at the time versus, you know, now today, like, how are those conversations different? Are you finding yourself like more in a mode where you're considering that or or not really? Yeah, so we have We have raised a little bit of angel money um, in the past year, but up until the past 12 months, we were 100% self-funded. And self-funded means, I think, maybe 
$5,000 between Issei and myself and then just it to like to start it up and then just pouring it like we maxed out every credit card like we did just any money that came in from like a, a consulting gig or something just like went back into the business. But so it's interesting. I feel much more confident in those calls now. I, I think early on, and I don't know if you've had the same situation, but I think early on you're talking to these people who seem to know so much or they know so much about something. So you assume they have all all the answers for you and you're like hanging on with bated breath of like, what should I do with my business? But in reality, of course, there is no secret answer and you do have to sort of just continue to grow with the business and learn about your customer and, you know, where you should head next. And so I've gotten into the habit of, even as I'm actively raising from investors, starting to say no, and just saying, Hey, this has been a great conversation. Wish you all the best. We're looking for someone who has a little bit more X, Y, and Z. Let's keep in touch. And that was a hard thing to do because whenever I was asking a lot of like founders or investor friends, they would tell me like, you don't do that. Like you can't say no. It's on the investor to say no. You can you can ghost them, which like always felt so wrong to me. But like you can't tell them that you don't want their money, which seemed very backwards given that um, this is a, a business partnership, right? It kind of felt like the old thing where it's not old because you still kind of have to do it as a woman, but you know, like some, like if a guy is hitting on you and you say, Oh no, sorry, I have a boyfriend because something about, you know, telling a man that you have a boyfriend is like more acceptable than just saying you're not interested. It felt like the same thing where I was being coached to say that the round was already full or whatever, when actually we were just still looking for a better or just a a different really partner. So I, I think the conversations have evolved a lot. And my thinking has evolved on how to balance the heart of the brand with the opportunities for scale and and how to finance that. But I think also now that we've kind of gotten to this point of being four years in and having accomplished a lot with very, very little, I think that I have a little bit more of a leg to stand on in those conversations to say, listen, I I know where we're headed. I know how we're going to do this. If you're on board, wonderful. If not, no worries, but you're probably not going to invest in this round. Yeah, and it's a two-way conversation. I mean, the investor, at some point, if you're going out to fundraise, at some point the tables turn and the investor is is trying to sell you yeah. on why they're the... If you have a great company, they're trying to sell you on why <laughs> they should own <laughs> a piece of your business. You're selling them a piece of your business. And, and so it's totally reasonable to say no. And I think that I really love what you're saying about just being more upfront about it as opposed to kind of ghosting or some other way of sort of like saying no (laughs) without saying no. And I think that's a hard thing just emotionally for people in general, just like saying no. Yeah, I'm trying to normalize it so that investors come to expect it from me and other founders because I think it's still sometimes a little like, oh, whoa, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's like anything else. It's always a mutual decision. I mean, we've mentioned lifestyle businesses versus startups. You've talked about how that dichotomy is not, you know, so black and white. There's a lot of like middle ground there. And there's a, <laughs> I'm using the air quotes, like guild tripping involved in the startup and, and business world where it's like, you're either in this camp where you're building something that is completely like purpose-driven yes. and you're not going to sell out by taking on any investors and you're going to kind of like focus everything on that side or 
you're trying to go for scale and build the biggest business of all time and you know nothing's going to stop you in that path and and but in practice like almost every business is is like in the gray area in between those two ends and you're mentoring so many more young entrepreneurs now do you find that that's one of the biggest like challenges that they deal with yes funding is a huge challenge and and i do think that a big question for me also has been, well, which am I? Am I the, you know, uh, the self-funded bootstrapped uh, small business or am I, you know, going after this big market share, you know, massive exit, whatever. And I think that it has taken me four years to truly understand the extent to which you do not have to sit on either side there and that there are just endless paths that you can take and and you know it's it's a spectrum not not a dichotomy and and so i i do try to pass that on to the folks that i'm chatting with who are you know earlier on in their journeys and so often i speak to really bright founders who self-funded their businesses have been around for two three even like five plus years and they've said you know what I'm sick of self-funding this. I'm sick of being broke. I, you know, I want to be able to hire people. I'm ready to scale. It's time to raise a boatload of money. And I find that oftentimes they've kind of like hyped themselves into this idea that like it's time to, you know, leave all of that behind and like come into the next, you know, stage of business and really be able to compete with these big players and I do remind them as much as I possibly can that that does come with trade-offs and shifts. And if you are the type of person who chose to build a business from scratch for five years, is that a transition that you want to make? There's nothing wrong with making that transition. And it's a transition that, you know, we've been, you know, thinking about and, and, you know, navigating, but I don't think you can flip a switch. I do know some founders who have done it and they've had tremendous success with it. And I don't suspect that they've really ever questioned whether it was the right move. But I do think that there is this sense of like almost feeling like you want to have a real company. You want to like get it bigger and, and you know, moving faster and you want to have all these, you know, advertisements running all the time. You want to burn money. But I think that there's, there's, there's a breadth of options out there. And, and my job that I have, I don't know, taken on um, is is to just educate folks on what the options are, as opposed to you know being dogmatic about which path folks should should go down. It's definitely an individual journey for for each founder. And I I find that there's a lot of grass is always greener kind of thinking in entrepreneurship because you're you're so consumed by the company that you're building right now and it. it takes so much of your time and you have such a clear point of view on all of the things that are going wrong about your business at a, any given point in time that you're you're kind of it's easy to succumb into like looking at some other companies from the outside and thinking oh it seems like it's going great for them mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile you I mean you're seeing the polished like press version of their business not the kind of uh, day-to-day struggle that they're dealing with and so um, I'm, I'm curious if that's something that, you know, you're coaching people through or that you've like felt yourself where you're like, I wonder if it's a lot easier for, you know, these other people and whether like I'm doing it wrong. Like, I think that's another kind of like <laughs> a feeling that, yes. uh, of, like, <laughs> that comes up a lot for entrepreneurs. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that I have thought so, so, so many times, am I doing this wrong? What is this person doing? This person seems to have it all figured out. I think that even sometimes now, I mean, it's, it's hard not to like let those, those things uh, pop into your ear. And I, I think also the further you get along, the more decisions you have behind you and the more you right. start to go, should I, should I have done that? That thing that I did two years ago, was that the right move? That was where it all, you know, that's where it all began. That's the, that's the wrong decision I made. And then now I'm paying for it two years later, whatever. I, I think you can dissect your decisions forever, but if you spent all that time thinking about decisions you had made, you wouldn't be running a company anymore. You would just be thinking and, and getting lost in those thoughts. So I think that there is just a certain amount of don't beat yourself up for feeling that way because it's very natural and it's so human, but also it's kind of like a meditation where, you know, they say, okay, well, the thoughts can come into your brain, but you kind of just let them pass. You know, you don't interact with the thought. And I think that that's something that you can bring into your work life in general. And, and, you know, thinking about building your business is you're going to have these like scary very sort of like self-defeating thoughts that are very tempting to indulge. And we all do indulge them. But the best thing to do for sure is to just let it pop into your head and then let it pop right back out. (laughs) (laughs) A version of that that we had early on at Lumi, because like when you're getting started, you have so little traction that I mean, in some ways, you know, it's it's great because you're going from zero to one. And so even getting one customer is really exciting. But what we figured out was helpful <laughs> for our psyche, me and, and my co-founder, Jesse, was measuring ourselves based on like how much we felt we learned in any given period of time, whether it was like a month or a year. Like, do we feel like we learned a lot? Because, I mean, it's it's not like there's a clear way to measure that exactly, but it's a feeling that you can have that you can objectively say, yeah, we learned a lot over the past six months. And it kind of makes it okay to <laughs> have a lot of decisions that probably you would have made differently yeah. had you known, but you didn't know. Well, I think that's an interesting piece because I, I've said this before, but you know, entrepreneurship is just a series of, of failures. You just fail and you fail and you fail and you learn every time. And I think there's something interesting to, to that, Stefan, about saying, okay, well, I'm going to tally up my learnings and not my mistakes mm-hmm. because they're the same at the end of the day. I mean, yeah, sometimes you learn from a win, but you learn more from, from, from a mistake. And if you can just kind of reframe that, it feels like progress rather than stagnation. What have you learned over the past like 12 months? What are some of the big things oh that have uh, uh, <laughs> that you're reflecting on? The past 12 months, we went from a full-time team of two to I think now we're eight all in, wow. um, which is still small, but um, it feels it feels wild to me. And I've learned a lot about the process of building a team and and finding the right people and and you know understanding what the company values are and then how that really transfers to to everyone at the at the the company building a team has turned out to be my favorite part thus far of building this business i feel like isa and i are like the i don't know the parents or like the aunt and uncle or something that like we're you know we've we've got just like this great group of people who are so dedicated and so good at what they do and we're really just here to coach them and, and guide them through their work. And 
we're still in the early stages. So I still do a lot of stuff myself, but getting to this new kind of phase where we're starting to do more coaching and, and guidance versus, you know, literally like being in, you know, a certain program has been such a, a fun brain exercise. And it's been really uh, rewarding uh, to, to see that growth and to be able to see it just outside of yourself. I think that there's something really lovely about um, the team being more than just you and, and your co-founder and, and being able to kind of take your ego out of it a little bit, because now it's really a team sport. And there's something very special in that, at least for me, that that I've really come to, to enjoy. What have you figured out about hiring or what have you been looking for out of the people that are on your team? Yeah, no ego is a really, really, really big one. And I, I, I think sometimes we talk to folks who are super smart and lovely and, and we know that they're very capable, but I can tell that they kind of want to work at gold because of how, what it will do for them and then where they can go afterwards. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not right for us. Mm-hmm. We are really focused on building something over the long haul. And, and we want to bring in people who do not bring preconceived notions of like what their work should be and what, you know, how everything relates back to them, to the company, if that makes sense. That's kind of the the number one. But what's been interesting is we found that all those values that we finally like typed out in a nice little document were just things that Issei and I had been teaching ourselves for the first couple of years and that they, they grew to be our values, which I, I think is interesting. And then as we started to hire people, even part-time, when we were really pleased with them, we would kind of point out, man, I, I love that this person is always, you know, looking at things, you know, this way, whatever. Um, or we would notice when someone just, you know, wasn't quite, you know, doing what we had hoped and the values really came out of that. What, what were some of those values that you typed out? Yeah. So no ego is one of them. See solutions is, is a big one for us, which is really all about, of course, if you're running into a problem, which of course you are, seeing what the opportunity is to fix it as opposed to seeing the problem and like just kind of saying, well, I have this situation and now I'm kind of like putting it on to someone else. Um, or, you know, it's not really my job, so I'm going to push it off to someone else. With such a small team, everyone has to take ownership and everyone has to be entrepreneurial to a certain extent. And that's what Issei and I have had to learn in in building this business with, you know, no resources and the, just the two of us. And, you know, so often as an entrepreneur, you're just like hit with things that you don't know what to do with. And we're always there as the support system for everyone on our team. And they can always escalate things to us. But I think working through things on your own and not just working through things, but seeing them in a positive light, seeing the solution and not the problem is really critical because otherwise you do kind of end up in a bit of a funk of like, well, this went wrong and that went wrong and this went wrong. And suddenly it feels like everything is wrong. So it's it's important to, to see how you're moving through those problems versus kind of getting stuck on the fact that those problems came up. Well, and that's so important, especially at the scale that you're at. My my mental model for like the entire time that we were sort of like up until maybe 15 people was Ocean's Eleven, where it was like, okay, you were just, 
you're the person who's doing this. Like you're a, a department of one. So you're going to need to figure this thing out. It's like both you have to both be the specialist, like the most mm-hmm. educated person in our group about whatever the thing is that you're doing. But also you have to be a generalist because there's only <laughs> eight of you or there's right. only like 11 people. So everyone's wearing a lot of hats. Um, and that's such a fun dynamic because it feels like everybody is, you know, we're trying to pull off this heist or whatever it is in the oceans uh 11 analogy and and then (laughs) as we were growing like 25 to 30 is a really weird number because there's now that we're like hitting 40 50 it's like you have lots of little mini oceans 11 that are doing their own thing but in the in in between it's it's like this kind of weird transitional point so that's a really fun moment and it's hopefully like creating that empowerment on your team to go and figure things out. Um, I like that idea of, of seeing solutions. You've become such a mentor, I think, like in <laughs> like publicly in your persona. <laughs> I'm curious about, um, you know, you mentioned the candle making uh, <laughs> on, on Issei's side. Are there other people that you consider your teachers, your mentors? And like, who, who are those people that, that you come back to? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I think that I have definitely looked to my mom as just a a constant source of inspiration. She's actually a big reason why we started Golden. And and she is the reason that I I first became interested in holistic health and, and wellness. I was raised in like a little bit of like a crunchy family. I, I, my grandmother ate all organic. I grew up on almond butter instead of peanut butter. Um, you know, I knew partially hydrogenated fats was like my favorite vocab word, uh, as, as a young kid. So I was, I was in on all that, but it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really understood the power of it. My mom has a a severe autoimmune disease. And when I was in high school, she switched over to seeing this more holistically minded doctor and saw this incredible improvement in her symptoms. It was really like night and day. And that was very much a pivotal moment for me. I decided, okay, this is my career path. I'm going to go to med school and, and, you know, practice medicine through this more sort of holistic lens, integrating, you know, diet and and nutrition um, and and mental health into well-being. And so I, I went down to NYU and I was pre-med there and all was well until um, I found out from my mom that she actually had to stop seeing that doctor because she couldn't afford it anymore, which forced me to pause and consider what exactly it was that I wanted to do in wellness and how accessibility played into that. So that was really like the core experience that uh, drove me to this point of, of thinking about wellness and accessibility um, and, and so I, I always bring that to what I do today even, but as far as, as, you know, real entrepreneurial mentors, I, I think I just love to talk to other founders. I, I love to talk to people who have been through it and who've been through the ups and downs, the good and the ugly. I, I think that those are the folks that can really give you insight into where you're at right now because they've been there and, and beyond. Some of the, the favorite founders that I've, I've spoken to or that I've harassed into speaking to me over the years, Tristan Walker from Bevel, one of the first 
entrepreneurs to ever, um, you know, give me any mentorship. Yeah. I like cold DM'd him on Instagram like years ago. and was like, hey, I just love what you're doing. And, you know, we're getting ready for this big retail launch. And he got on the phone with me and, and you know, just walked me through thinking about raising money, thinking about going into more retail, which was super helpful. I just chatted with Sophia Maruso and, and was on a panel with her recently too. And, and it was, it was one of those moments where you're on the panel and you're just like, I felt like I was distracted because I was just listening so closely to her story because it was so fascinating to, to hear about, um, you know, what that journey had looked like. And I've just found that talking to folks who have kind of been through it on all ends and, and even, you know, gotten to the point of an exit or whatever and, and can speak to the full story are the ones that can really speak to what it's like in the early days, because you really have the full context to be able to reflect on that. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it makes me think about something that uh, we have our own office hours at Lumion. We've been doing some internally with the team. And um, someone on our team was asking a similar question. My co-founder, Jesse, was talking about how your interaction with other founders changes a lot over time, I find. And you've got those entrepreneurs who are like, on the ladder, like 10 rungs above you. Like you don't even, it's like, it's so hard to imagine going from where you are to where they are. And then there's people who, who are like 10 rungs below you. And you're like, they, they're just even getting started. Like they don't even know where to begin with any of what you've done even. <laughs> and, and you kind of keep having the same realization every year. Like, Oh my God, I didn't know anything last year. And now <laughs> I know this stuff. And it, it's it seems like it never ends and and so some of those people like Tristan that you mentioned uh some of some of those people have the superpower of being able to themselves go back in time and remember what it was like because sometimes the those people who've like you feel that they've made it they're still on their own journey um but they they are some of them really good at being able to go back in time to like those early days and give you practical advice which not everyone can yeah, totally, totally. What else comes to mind in terms of like bits of advice and things that you're you find yourself often giving to entrepreneurs these days? Yeah, the biggest questions that I get from entrepreneurs these days are around funding the business and marketing and and getting the word out and then actual like operations like okay, I need to make this product. Where do I get this packaging? Where do I do that? And on the financing piece, we talked about it a bit, but you know, my 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 number one advice there is is really to be thoughtful about what your goals are and to really understand what the value system is that you're operating with. Because I've I've found that again and again, it holds true through the years. And and I've been surprised at the extent to which it holds true and how much how how much has changed and yet how little has changed in our business and the way that we operate. We're bigger, we're more sophisticated, we're faster, but the value system and, and the way we think about financing the business or you know who should be involved is still very much our core. And then on the marketing front, uh, this is an interesting one because again, it kind of comes back to this question of, of dollars, right? And, and people are wondering how they can get the word out, but they don't have budget. And th the thing there is that when you're building a business, you are always building, you know, against two variables, time and money. And you can use a whole bunch of money to make things happen faster, or you can leverage time as your resource 
and do things slowly at a low cost. And you really just kind of have to decide where you're going to fall in that spectrum because it's going to be one or the other and, and most likely it's going to be both. And so with that, I've really recommended folks who are bootstrapping their businesses and trying to get the word out to think about how they can organically share that message, but also to know that it takes a while. You know, like we, yeah. we are now four years into this and I think it took like, two, two and a half years to even get like 10,000 followers on Instagram. Like we were small, we're still small, but I think that people are are a little bit hooked on this idea of they're going to launch. And then all of a sudden it's going to be this big splash. And in reality, uh, it's, it's the perseverance and the resilience that does get you eventually to that point where you look back and think, wow, you know, we, we have done something. We have gotten in front of people. So I think there's just a lot of patience that's required on that front, um, on the marketing side of things. Yeah, and I feel like you have to choose things that are... In order to have that patience, you have to have the stamina to keep doing it. Yes. And so you have to choose the things that you're going to... You feel like you can stay passionate about. Like for us, like this podcast, for example, was one of the ways that we've been talking about Lumi and, and our company. And... <laughs> You know, the like listenership, especially with podcasts, it's not even like, I mean, Instagram has a little bit more virality built mm-hmm. into it. So you can expect that kind of stuff to maybe happen if you're lucky. But with some other things, like, like for me, I just love talking to people like you. Just like, you know, it's just fun for me. I yeah. would be doing this. I was doing it before I had a company. <laughs> I'll probably still do it afterwards. <laughs> and so it's just fun. And so if that, like, if you can layer that thing that is going to, especially in the early days, like keep you going. And, and it seems like maybe office hours is one of those things for you. I'm, I'm curious if there are other things like that where you're just doing it because it's fun. And, it, and in that way, it has created the kind of like patience and authenticity that makes it successful. I love that piece about stamina. Um, that's that's so, so real. And I would say that the other thing for sure on my end is product development and the the brand side of it that just gets me excited like we have a new product that's launching at the end of this month and we just got the product samples in and we've been making ourselves some delicious unknown lattes <laughs> i'll say so i don't give too much away <laughs> but we've been making ourselves lattes every morning we've been doing little photo shoots um you know and Oftentimes we find that like the, some of the best content is, is the stuff that like we shoot on an iPhone, just like there's some good light, you know, in the window, you just get it in that little corner, shoot it. And that's the fun stuff, you know, figuring out, you know, what kind of events we're going to do with our community around this launch, figuring out what's going to launch next year. That's the stuff that I could talk about forever. And I 100% agree. Um, this, this process of building a business is so ruling that if I didn't have that, it would be very difficult to keep going um, each day. And so I I think it's, it's like product and marketing. It's for sure office hours and and mentorship. And then it's, it's, it's my partnership. I, I think it's interesting being in business with your significant other. There is a line that gets blurred between your personal relationship and the business. And I think that, uh, you know, this, this business has a very special place in my heart for that reason. And I, I think those are kind of the three things that power me through. 
Well, and also you're you're in this world of making things that you can eat. <laughs> like you know, there's the there's the like eat, eating your own dog food kind of advice. Like yes. in in your world, it's like so direct because you know you're probably like consuming your own products and so that that that's a that's a thing that like not all companies have that kind of dynamic you know that's a good point and and maybe sometimes like the the dark side of that is like am i (laughs) am i at work just when i'm eating lunch like yeah i don't know if that happens (laughs) no this happens because isay's younger brother was making curry for like the whole family and he used our turmeric latte blend to make the curry and we were eating this and i was like why does this taste like work? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, it's delicious, but I, I, this flavor profile is really throwing me right now. But yeah, no, I mean, we, every single product that we make has to be a product that we would love to use every day or else I, I just don't see the point. And, and yeah, I think it, it keeps you excited. There, there are moments even when we'll go back to a product that like, maybe we just haven't had in a while. Cause we have a few now. So like, you know, I'll make myself like a cacao turmeric latte with our latte blend um, and have it for the first time in a few months. Be like, oh, my God, this is good. <laughs> and that's yeah. a really that's a really cool feeling. It seems like you're just a, a general like foodie, I guess. I don't know if foodie is even I feel like I feel old saying the word foodie. It's um, a bit, it, I feel like what, it dates new, us. But <laughs> <laughs> what's the what's the word? What is it? Gourmand now or something? something? No, that yeah, doesn't what are young either. kids saying about people who like food? I don't know. well i grew up in france and so when i heard the first first time i ever heard the term foodie i was like that's just people right i mean that's just (laughs) 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 what who's not a foodie but um what are you cooking eating making for yourself these days outside of gold products yeah right we my my partner and i do a lot of cooking at home um isay is definitely the chef between the two of us, but I excel at making salad dressings and stirring pots of beans. <laughs> but to answer your question, we're very, very focused on just like eating good local stuff. And, and we've been upstate back home for the past uh, six months or so. So we're very fortunate that we have the opportunity to go on these little drives and like visit these different farms and like pick up specific things from, you know, what, what we like from them. And with that, I, I think if you lean into just good seasonal produce, the whole cooking process gets so much simpler and you're really just saying, okay, well, uh, it's March. So it's, uh, carrots and potatoes at this point. And you're working with that. And I, I, I think just bringing really good, you know, fresh herbs and spices into the mix is, is really great. And just, and, and a lot of beans. I, I feel like it's just been quarantine beans, you know, like we will, we'll do a big pot of beans with potatoes and, and carrots and celery and just cook that down until it's delicious. Usually there's some butter involved also. What kind of beans are we talking about? Literally any uh, beans. Um, any I'm beans. definitely one of those um, devotees to Rancho Gordo. Okay. <laughs> Cause once you get into the like dried uh, beans area, there's like so many varieties. It's a whole, it's a whole subculture. Oh my God. It's, I, I feel like this has been my, uh, my, my most, it's what I'm most fascinated with now, all these different beans. So we just tried a new bean. I don't even know what it was called, but it was delicious. And it's been fun to just, you know, have a couple packs and then each week we'll do something new. We've also been doing 
like just cooking a whole chicken uh, in mm-hmm. in water yeah. and just letting it cook. I do a lot of that actually. Like uh, that's the best. Well, there's a few different uh, kind of I, there's. Do you know? Um, is it Heinie's chicken? Oh yeah 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 yeah. Um, yeah, the kind of a very classic, um, just in all across uh, Southeast Asia, kind of like mm-hmm. boiled chicken. It sounds like if you haven't made it before, it's it sounds like it'd be weird, but it's actually great. Um, and then you get stuck with it. Exactly. Yeah. So let that be the cooking tip that we we leave the the viewer the listeners with: boil a chicken. I I don't I <laughs> I haven't gone into the bean phase of my life yet. Like I've I like I love beans, but I haven't gone all the way into working with all the different varieties. I feel like that's going to come at some point. Maybe this is the inspiration. Yes, I I hope so. (laughs) You talked about making wellness accessible. I guess if someone's just came from under a rock and never heard the term wellness, like how do you get someone started? Like what's, you talked about how overwhelming it can be. Where does someone start? I think you start with listening to your body, which sounds cheesy, but it's true. Because it's really, wellness is just a, a, a series of practices that you're putting into place that help you feel like your best self. And maybe that's having a superfood latte, but it might also be going for a walk around the block, it might be calling a friend, it might be making a to-do list that's well-organized that allows you to check everything off and like have that sense of satisfaction. That's all wellness. And I I think that we've gotten into this like self-care obsession and like it's all about like bubble baths and face masks and we all love those things. But I I think if you can pare it down a little bit and just let it be a dialogue that you're having with your body and and your sense of, uh, you know, emotional well-being also, that's really where it starts to click. And then you can add from there. But that's really the foundation of what you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I know all the best advice is cheesy, I think, is what I've learned. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's stuff that you've heard before, but somehow it hasn't clicked like completely at that moment. Yeah. Um, and I feel like for the first time, I, I'm like hearing you say that advice and I'm really trying to listen to it in the way that knowing yourself is such a lifelong process. But mm-hmm. maybe I'm getting a little closer to that. Thank you, Trinity. This has been really fascinating. I would, I can't wait to have you on again in like two yes. years and like figure out all of the next things <laughs> that you've learned. Gold, G O L D E dot C O um, mm-hmm. is your website, and people can explore all of your great products. And what you got the gold, gold uh, Instagram. Yeah, yeah, at gold. So uh, hit us up there. That's where you can get all the best, like first looks at the recipes and, uh, uh, other fun announcements. So I feel like that's the best place. To follow. Was that available? How did you get that uh, Instagram handle? We made it happen, Stefan. We made it happen. You made it happen. No <laughs> questions asked. Okay. Um, we didn't pay for it. We didn't pay for it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, all of those uh, handles can be quite difficult. So I'm impressed that you were able to get that one. So check it out. Yeah, gold on Instagram. Anything else we should point people to? No. Oh, um, well, we're now available at Target. So I feel like that's also a thing that we can say. Uh, now available at, uh, at Target stores. Um, you can find the closest store to you by going to Target.com and typing in gold and uh, seeing where you can head to. Congrats. Thank you.
It's been great to have you. Uh, talk to you soon. Yep. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.